Hey everybody, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. I am Dr. Kara Fitzgerald, uh, and we are jumping back into the pond with Mark Newman, the um, founder and developer of uh, the Dutch Test, the founder of Precision, Precision Analytical, um, and his flagship test uh, called Dutch, which we are going to uh, go over carefully, and we're going to talk about some of his new innovative stuff. But let me give you a background on Mark. He is a recognized expert and international speaker in the field of hormone testing. Uh, after over 10 years of developing several hundred novel tests at multiple labs, Mark began his own laboratory, Precision Analytical, where he continues to develop the latest innovations in hormone testing. His flagship product is the Dutch Test, a dried urine test for comprehensive hormones, and his most recent advancement is the Dutch Plus with cortisol awakening response. We're going to talk all about the CAR today. Uh, Mark is committed to helping providers find the answers they need in their in hormone testing and has educated thousands of physicians on different hormone tests available and best practices, especially in hormone replacement therapy and bioidentical hormone replacement therapy monitor. Uh, Mark, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine. Thank you. Great to be here. It's great to have you again. Folks, we'll have links to Mark's original podcast with me, which I think, Mark, we did in either early 20, 2016 or late 2015. And I, I have no idea, but I'm, I'm <laughs> sure you're close. I have no idea. We kind of, we definitely went down the, the, the geek rabbit hole. Yeah, that's we for talked, sure. We talked quite a bit about... Um, creatinine urinary creatinine i think we got off on a tangent on that but it was a great it was a really fun podcast and it just kind of highlighted some of your um laboratory geekiness and just really the fact that you developed an awesome you know very unique test in our space and you know it's highly regarded it's highly respected by i know my peers i think bethany hayes and, and um sarah godfried both were talking about dutch and that piqued my curiosity and i reached I reached out to you, I think, to learn more about it, and we ended up podcasting together. So, you know, I just appreciate the effort you've put into developing this. And I'm going to say one other thing, and then hush, the, you, you know, when you say in your bio that you're committed to providing clinicians the answers, you are actually one of the most available CEOs and analytical chemists out there, and we appreciate it. So thank you. Yeah, we appreciate finding uh, clinicians that like to geek out with us on uh, on these <laughs> topics. So, yeah, indeed. All right, so let's do first of all before we talk about some of the new um, analytes you're working on and where the tests are are going. Let's just give me an overview of the Dutch test, and you know, just some of some of the the um, panels that you offer. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the, for, for us, most everything is folds into this Dutch model of testing, which is, is for me, just the concept of liking urine analysis for hormones because of all the metabolites that you get. And for me, my history was, you know, running urine testing and seeing its pros and cons and then uh, running saliva testing labs and looking at the pros and cons and trying to build a model that has the benefits of both. Um, because I want that up and down pattern of free cortisol throughout the day, but I want all of those metabolites. Uh, for me, I'm greedy for information um, in terms of trying to find uh, just what's going on with a particular patient. The more pieces to the puzzle we can add, mm -hmm. um, 
the better. So we're looking at the cortisol pattern throughout the day using those, those urine markers instead of saliva for the free cortisol, which is a, is a good uh, replacement for free cortisol uh, in just that up and down pattern. And then estrogen metabolites and androgen metabolites and, and the cortisol metabolites. Um, to each of those families of hormones, adding the metabolites in just gives you a fuller picture of, um, of what's going on. Uh, and, and it's for yes. me, it's just it's a strong model when you're trying to get a, a feel for what's going on with somebody for their reproductive and their adrenal hormones. You're looking at so, so, so much. So you're looking at um, DHEAS, you're looking at testosterone, then you're looking at the estrogens, then you're looking at the estrogen metabolites. Um, so 16 hydroxyestrone, four hydroxyestrone, two hydroxyestrone, two methoxyestrone. So you're looking at catechol-methyltransferase activity and methylation. You're also looking at five alpha reductase um, and five beta reductase activity. So that's the um, production of the metabolites from testosterone and whether you know an individual is generating more potent androgen via 5-alpha or less potent androgens via 5-beta. Uh, and this is extremely useful if you're analyzing, as we talked about on our first podcast, if you're looking at PCOS in women, maybe if you're looking at, you know, imbalances in men, you know, acne, male pattern baldness, et cetera, et cetera. There's all sorts of reasons that it's helpful to have those analytes. And of course, with regard to estrogen metabolites, we know that we want to correct balance or we increase risk for um, estrogen-sensitive cancers and all sorts of, you know, estrogen dominant conditions. Um, you also have the progesterone metabolites and what else? You've got melatonin and then you have the cortisol. Um, yeah. And then, then we just recently added eight hydroxy deoxyguanosine. So there's an oxidative stress marker. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to look as broad as we can. I mean, if you look at someone with an estrogen problem, they could just be making too much estrogen, but oftentimes there's also a phase one issue or or and a phase two issue with methylation. Yep. Uh, and so just being able to look at, you know, how much of this hormone do you have and what is your body doing with it, both phase one and phase two, um, you, you just understand what's going on with a patient in terms of their, their particular flavor of dysfunction. Um, more often you're going to get, you're going to get it right. If you have more information. Absolutely. It's extremely useful. Um, and it's, and it's illuminating to the patient. Uh, I, I, without exception, any patient that I'm walking through um, their laboratory data with is interested in it and it's motivating, you know, to see what we can tweak and um, how we're going to do it and why. And, you know, it's easy to do a follow-up and, and just confirm we've achieved what we've wanted to. Um, so the, the nice thing about um, doing the dried urine assessment is there's just four specimen collected through the day too. Yeah, it's easy to do uh, so you can get that that big look at your hormones without torturing your patient. So it's really simple for them to do. And, and then, then we've just been on a quest to figure out where are the holes in what we're doing. So if we've got this nice test for one day, that's great. But then if you have a woman with irregular cycles or she doesn't happen to be bleeding because, you know, she had a partial hysterectomy or an ablation um, or she's got a fertility problem, then we, we've created the, the cycle mapping version of it where you can collect one of these little samples most days throughout the cycle. And then we look at the length of the cycle and the samples and try to map out that pattern. So you can look at the ovulatory peak. You can look at the luteal peak with respect to estrogen and progesterone uh, because for some people, one day is not enough. 
Um, and so, th so that led to the development of the cycle mapping version. And then, you know, as we discussed, uh, to try to get an even bigger picture of what's going on with cortisol and the adrenals, that's why we're, we've moved in the direction of, uh, of what we call the Dutch Plus. Yes. So, so you have the four-point salivary, excuse me, the four-point urine, which right. is akin to the four-point salivary. Uh, clinicians, if you're doing a four-point salivary, you can bang that out using the four-point urine. Um, plus, you can get the sex hormones and the metabolites. It's, you know, it's really cool. And just, I know we're going to talk about the the cortisol awakening response in a second, but just regarding the Dutch um, comprehensive, I mean, what was the epiphany that prompted you to create this? I mean, it's unique in our space. It honestly was obesity. So, and that, so looking at literally over a million data points from saliva, and, and at this point, my understanding of the relationship between cortisol and weight gain and some of this was, was more of this simple understanding you get when you drive down the road and listen to the radio and hear people with commercials saying, hey, cortisol makes you fat, take this, this anti-cortisol product or whatever. Um, and we had you know, clients that were testing tons of people with the understanding that when you have high cortisol, you're gaining weight. And when you're gaining weight, you have high cortisol. But when you look at the data, and then as you dig through the literature, it's not true of free cortisol. The free cortisol correlation that I looked at with these millions of data points was actually a very slightly negative correlation, meaning the, the higher someone's BMI is going, it was just slightly negative. I mean, look in the literature, it's, it's more or less there's none. Right, as you get heavier and heavier, more adipose tissue, the free cortisol has no relationship. And so I'm scratching my head at that and thinking that that doesn't make any sense. Um, and then as you dig through the literature further, what you find is, yes, the production of cortisol increases as patients get heavier, but it's all seen in the metabolites. So if you look at the metabolites of cortisol, which at that point I'm blind because I'm looking at saliva and you cannot measure these terminal metabolites of cortisol any other way but a urine test. Um, that's really what drove me to develop it. And then we started looking at, hey, the parallel pattern of free cortisol in urine uh, is very similar, urine and saliva. So then can we develop this model where we can look at both? And then when we started doing that, and now that we've done, you know, literally uh, tens of thousands of patients, we've started to see, you know, these really interesting patterns where there's this connection between, you know, firstly, uh, BMI, like the metabolites are going way up because you're making all this cortisol. And if your free cortisol happens to be a little bit low and you're making tons of cortisol, you know, does it still make sense to ramp up someone's cortisol production? And we, we've started approaching that, um, I think, as an industry, a little bit different. And then you start to tie in thyroid and how many of your patients have concurrent thyroid problems. It's so common. Well, there's a direct relationship between your body's ability to clear cortisol and your thyroid status, right? Uh -huh. So if you look at free cortisol and you look at the metabolites of cortisol, then you have this window into the clearance rate of cortisol. And we've, you know, like very early on in the process, I tested a friend who was really low for free cortisol and really high for the metabolites. And I'm going, well, that's weird because I see that in obesity, but you're skinny as can be. Well, it turned out her 
patient was, uh, her doctor had given her thyroid and she misunderstood the instructions and was taking it twice a day instead of once a day. So she had induced hyperthyroidism and looking at the test actually prompted this evaluation of, oh, we've, we've induced hyperthyroidism accidentally. Um, and you could see this connection. Um, and that's something we see often is this connection between your thyroid status and the cortisol picture, and then you throw obesity into it, and it just gets more and more um, complex. But that's that's why we want more data because there there are so many different scenarios where having extra information really gives you a clearer understanding of just how to characterize that patient with respect to cortisol. Um, and that so that was the main driver behind that was just trying to to get a bigger picture for what's going on with cortisol in patients. That's so interesting. So we have the, you have the kit and caboodle, direct cortisol, as well as the metabolites. It is really useful. And it just so happens that the test is easy to do because there's just four points. You don't have to collect your urine all day and drag that jug around right. with you. Right. Um, and so it's an inverse relationship anyway, just to kind of color that in for people with regard to the, we, I mean, everybody knows we learn in medical school, there's an interconnection between thyroid and adrenals and you need to track both of them. Um, or in fact, if you overtreat thyroid and somebody has, um, you know, adrenal insufficiency, that could be a really dangerous problem. But in the subclinical issues, um, thyroid is promoting cortisol metabolism so you can see an accumulation in hypo and in hyper you can see an insufficiency in cortisol and then an increase in um metabolized cortisol is that correct right so yeah it's and it's complex right because that's that's just one layer of the connection right because there's also a connection between cortisol and tsh and your conversion from yeah. t3 uh, t4 to t3 uh, so they they play off of each other in several you know places and so the, the look that we get of like excessive um cortisol clearance is the same look that we tend to get in obese patients um, and the opposite in a hypothyroid case. So then what happens if they're hypothyroid and obese, right? So you get all these complexities um, and that's where, yeah, I just don't feel very confident in, in understanding how I want to describe your cortisol state, if you will, or situation, unless I've got, you know, more information to go off of the diurnal pattern, the free levels, and then also, you know, what is your total output of cortisol, you know, by way of those metabolites. It's mm, great. Thank you so much for that explanation. Let's talk about um, where you guys are, are going with regard to um, assessing cortisol and, and the new release of cortisol awakening response. Talk about, you know, just your decision around doing that and, 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 you know, just what the test is, what it measures. Just give me the whole story on that. Yeah, it's, you know, it really is just one more piece of the cortisol story, if you will, but it's a really important piece. And there's a little bit of irony to it in that, you know, you talk to some sort of cortisol experts like Tom Williams, like he's a, yep. he's a smart guy, works for ortho. He digs through literature all the time. And, you know, for him, like he's come to the conclusion that like, the most single piece of information <laughs> I can have on cortisol is yep. the cortisol awakening response. Yep. And then, and what I mean by the irony in that is that nobody's doing it. Like you have all these salivary uh, labs doing salivary cortisol. We're doing the same thing in the urine, the free cortisol picture of up and down, up and down, but that's not a true CAR. The true CAR is I must have a sample at waking meaning 
a saliva sample within the first five minutes, I've got to have that as a baseline. Then I test 30 minutes later, and that's usually the first test. If that's the second test, now I can look at this dynamic change between waking and 30 minutes later. And then there's some more collections throughout the day, but it's really, that's the, 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 the heart of the issue is looking at that gap between waking and 30 minutes later, because what would we want to do above anything with cortisol is I would want to be able to test you at moment zero and then, you know, have a lion chase you or poke you in the eye or whatever acts as a stressor for you to say, hey, here's a stressor. And then I'm going to test your response to that. Like that's a really valuable piece of information to see how does your body respond to stress. And of course, that's pretty hard to simulate um, in the middle of the day. But it just so happens that the act of waking up triggers the body like a stress does. Right. Yeah. So if you if you you know your cortisol has been climbing since about 2 a.m., this slow journey up. And then when the light hits the back of your eyes, it triggers all of this physiology and boom, your cortisol supposed to go up about 50 percent um, or a little bit more in those first 30 minutes. And that's a that's a variable related to HPA axis function that you just can't get any other way. Um, you know, we want to see the diurnal pattern. We want to see the total production and all of that. But the, the cortisol awakening response is is a good piece of information. And there have been some nice studies. Um, I think I sent you one of the papers that we were we were looking at and discussing where they were looking at, hey, who's going to get depressed, right? Who's going to get major depressive disorder? And when they looked at cortisol, none of the individual points in these people when they tested before the study, none of the individual points correlated as strongly as the CAR, meaning that gap, that delta, that change between waking and 30 minutes later, meaning when your, um, when your change over those first 30 minutes is exaggerated in this study, you had an increased, a significantly increased risk for going on to develop major depressive disorder because we all know there's a connection between having too much cortisol and getting depressed and looking at this this gap even if your levels are within the normal range if that bounce in the morning is excessive then your hpa axis is in a bit of overdrive whether that's because you're of your life like you're stressed you have way too much perceived stress that's one option or you don't have too much stress but your body responds in, a, in an exaggerated way to a stressor and in either in either case you're at risk for symptoms related to high cortisol um, and this is one more variable to define someone that way. So certainly if your free cortisol is high all day, then yeah, like you've got high cortisol. But even if that's not true, you could end up in that like designation, that camp of, of overactive HPA axis uh, if you've got this exaggerated response in the morning. And then you've got the opposite story too, right? If you wake up and it's flat, even if you're in the normal range, if you don't have a dynamic change at waking, then that says, hey, when you're faced with a stressor at 1 p.m. or dinner time or whatever, your body's response to that has been blunted by, you know, whatever it is. Um, but that is a, a measure of dysfunction in the HPA axis. And so as we look at our test, we've got the most comprehensive look at cortisol. But if I want that last really critical piece, I have to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, I'm not willing to give up the metabolites because that's still a really important measurement. But so we've created a combination test where, and it's pretty simple actually for patients to do, um, they wake up and we use these cotton swabs for collection, which makes it way easier. So you pop that in your mouth right when you wake up and a minute or two later, you're done. You pop it back and then half an hour later, 60 minutes, 
um, and then dinner and bedtime, you've got this, this cortisol story told by the saliva, but then we also capture the dried urine test so that we can still look at not just the cortisol metabolites, but we still want to tell that big story for estrogens and androgens and progesterone and, and so on. So that's, that's where that came from is that if you want the best cortisol story, like that's how you get it. And the Dutch complete, I think is an improvement on the story that you can get for cortisol relative to what people have been doing. Um, but this just ex expands it one step further, but it's a pretty, it's a pretty valuable step. Yep. And I think that it is. And I, and there's, you know, there's a, there's a nice body of literature on cortisol awakening response folks. Um, you can head over to PubMed and, you know, you'll readily pull up hundreds of papers if you do a broad search on it and then you can type in specific areas. I have, I have the papers that Mark just referenced and we will include those on um, his show notes page so you can see some of the things that Mark was thinking about in developing it. Well, listen, it's just, I'm really glad that you decided to take it on because I know Tom has been arguing for the cortisol awakening response and I, he's had a really compelling argument and I just, you know, I'm, I, I appreciate the fact that you guys, you guys, you know, took it as a call to action. I know you, you did your first, obviously, due diligence in determining whether or not it was something that was, you know, worth you putting your time in, but developing a new assay is no, you know, small feat. So I appreciate right. you looking at it and then actually jumping in and doing it. Yeah. And you know, it's fun. It's funny, the things that limit us as labs, if you ask yourself why it doesn't exist, it really in the market space much, it's because of logistics. So you have to get a saliva sample within five minutes and you have to get enough to test, right? So what are the options to do that? It's really difficult to do that if you don't use these cotton swabs, right? But if I'm a saliva lab, I'm testing my saliva for what? Cortisol, but also progesterone. Well, guess what? Those stupid swabs absorb progesterone. So you cannot use them for collection for both the CAR and your sex hormones. <laughs> so we're, we're, I mean, just sort of ironically, like uniquely positioned to be able to grab the cortisol out of the saliva and ignore it for the reproductive hormones because I think urine's a better way to test reproductive hormones anyways. But that's like, that's been this major hangup um, to doing it because there's like, there was another lab that's doing it. Um, and that's good, but they're asking you to collect two milliliters of saliva by just spitting in a tube right when you wake up within five minutes without, without rinsing your mouth, eating anything or drinking anything. And it's like, you just like, you can't do it. And if you take yeah. too long, then it, it screws the whole thing up because your yeah, cortisol, yeah, yeah. Is hard, you know what I mean? So yes. yeah, so there's a funny reason why it was uniquely in a position for us to be able to, um, to do that. So that's really funny. Yeah, that's stressful in and of itself, having to uh, collect that much spit. So yeah, you guys were. Listen, give me in 30 seconds, because people are wondering why urine is better than saliva. 30 second rundown for sex hormones. I just okay, so just talk about estrogens. So it's a simple, it's simple. There's a thousand times more hormone in urine than in saliva. If you look at the, and this is with all due respect to saliva testing, if you look at the reference range for estradiol in good labs, there is a ton of overlap between pre and postmenopausal women because there's not very much estrogen there. The technology we have can, let's just say, barely get down to those levels. So I can point you to a very well-respected lab where the postmenopausal range for estradiol and saliva is actually higher, very slightly, 
than the premenopausal range because when they test otherwise healthy people, they get about the same results in pre and postmenopausal women. When we do that in urine, we can use GC tandem MS, really sensitive, really accurate methods, and there's a tenfold gap between the average premenopausal woman and the average postmenopausal woman. So what am I trying to do? I'm trying to define you. Are you the have, are you the have not, or are you the excess? Like which group are you in? And it's just a better tool for doing that I think serum would be about on par with that in terms of asking that question. Then the benefit here is we add the phase one and the phase two metabolites. And so you get a lot more information, but analytical accuracy is not a problem for cortisol in saliva. It's not that bad for progesterone, but when you get down to estradiol, I think I went over 30 seconds, but it's just a really difficult <laughs> measure. So yeah. there you go. And um, the urine hormones correlate pretty nicely with serum would you say so we've done um like full disclosure on urine we've done a, a, a serum correlation with pro the progesterone metabolites that we have um, we got a lot stronger correlation than when we did the salivary analysis the same was true for estradiol um statistically there's like was equivalence in terms of what we did looking at postmenopausal women you know follicular phase luteal phase ovulatory phase i would say for testosterone i would lean more heavily on like I think serum is the gold standard for testosterone a free and a total testosterone uh, there are some caveats to urine testing with testosterone we have all these metabolites which adds information and testosterone is okay um, it's good but I think it's better in serum so yeah so it depends on the hormone um, I prefer urine for estrogen I think it's fairly equivalent for progesterone uh, for testosterone I like our metabolites but if I'm me meaning a male patient like I would still want a serum free and total testosterone. So that's kind of how I, I would break it down in terms of, so yes, I think really good equivalents for, for estrogen and progesterone. It's just, it's okay for testosterone, but it's not excellent like it is for, uh, for the other uh, more female, you know, related reproductive hormones. Well, what about the testosterone metabolites? Is urine better than serum? Uh, you, you just don't get them in serum, right? For the most what part. Like I, okay, go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, well I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Right, so you can you can look at DHEA either way, but yes. you can look at those DHEA metabolites, the androstene dione metabolites, androsterone and etiocalanolone. Those are the the most abundant like end products of DHEA and androstene dione. So I think if you just want to say, hey, hey, how much how much of this stuff is my adrenal gland pu putting out? I think urine's a better place to get that. And then one happens to be a five alpha metabolite, the other is a five beta metabolite. So you get a, a good picture of am I shoving towards DHT? the 5-alpha pathway, the more androgenic pathway, you know, PCOS, hair loss, uh, whatever. Um, and so in that sense, I, get, I think you get a more complete picture in urine. You can measure androstane di glucuronide in serum, and that's a pretty good marker for DHT. Um, nobody seems to do it much for whatever reason. So there are some options. Okay in serum, but I, you get a more complete picture in urine. But when you're talking about just testosterone in isolation by itself, you know, I've got an injection, I'm measuring testosterone, whatever, that kind of situation. Um, I think the the serum is a, be, is a better number than, than you get in urine for testosterone. Got it. Got it. I actually didn't articulate my question correctly. I was interested in um, five alpha activity and using right. and so and serum versus urine specifically for five alpha and what you're saying is urine is preferable 
So yeah, what I like is I, I get those, those androgen metabolites, but I can also see 5-alpha, 5-beta metabolism in progesterone. I can see it in cortisol. So um, you, you get a, a nice look at, hey, does this person really prefer 5-alpha? The thing that's weird about DHT, and this is maybe too long of a conversation, but it's a, it's a paracrine hormone, which, which means it's made in the cell. I made DHT in the cell. It acted in the cell, and then it's deactivated in the cell. So measuring DHT itself in serum is not a – like DHT isn't a good marker for itself, right? You, you'll want to look at in serum, it's that terminal metabolite, androstenediol glucuronide, that actually is a better marker for DHT than DHT itself. So, you know, but in urine, we get this big look at alpha versus beta in multiple, in four different places, actually. Um, so, like, I feel like I have a pretty good handle on whether someone's shoving down the alpha pathway or not. And then we have so many androgens. The other question is, how much just general androgen do I have? If I'm a 5-alpha metabolizer, but I have no androgens, like, who cares? You're not going to get hair loss if you, have no, if you have no hormone, even if you happen to push in that direction. So asking the question, do I have a lot of androgens, yes or no, and then do I push it down that androgenic pathway, I think urine's a better way to do that. But if you add in that, that one serum metabolite, I think you can get a decent look at it there you know, as well. Good. Okay, good. So, so take home for testosterone and metabolites, consider doing both urine and serum. Um, and serum especially. is special for testosterone. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Okay. So let's circle back to cortisol awakening response. Um, for the, for the patient with um, frequent wake-ups, I mean, what do you do? You know, are you messing with the assessment? I mean, if somebody, uh, you know, it, that's, the question you have to ask yourself is, is it worth the hassle and is it worth the extra for us at 75 more bucks um, to do the CAR? If someone's waking up all the time, like it might, it might not be worth it because I, you know, if you wake up once in the middle of the night, go back to sleep and then you get up at bed at waking time, right? Like it doesn't screw up your CAR. But if you've like, if you're severely sleep disturbed, you can probably pretty well guess that when you happen to get out of bed at 6:43 or whatever it is, and then 30 minutes later, you know, it's not going to be crazy that that's not going to be a true CAR because you've been rolling around, you know, all night and up and down and, and what have you. So, so in some of those cases, you know, I might just do the Dutch complete and, and call it good um, because I'm just assuming that you have a problem in that area. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say it's a slam dunk that that's going to be, um, that's going to, you know, show you something profound in a patient like that. Um, mm -hmm. So Yeah. Well, it might be it might be interesting actually to look at and see that it's you know higher when it's not supposed like they're you know an individual's already moved into some degree of stress response when they're you know supposed to just be um, you know slow not quite there yet. I mean, I know we start pumping cortisol out you know at in night, but it's kind of a slow push, and then there's that CAR leap in that first half hour, but you could, I mean, I would imagine in the insomniac and you can tell me whether this is true or not, you're seeing almost like that early, that early response. They're in a fight or flight already. They're already high. And then their 30 minute follow-up is basically the same. I mean, is that what you're seeing or would you see two, two measurements I mean, that are really low or, I mean, what do you, you see different flavors of that, right? I mean, some, that's, some people do look as you described um, and, but it's not always predictable, but it's hard to know in some of those cases, is like when to actually do that true, you know, CAR if you if you're severely sleep disturbed. Um, and in some of those cases, you know, what we have with the Dutch complete is you would wake up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom, 
and we'd measure that for cortisol. And then you'd wake up and get out of bed and there'd be another sample there. And we measured that as an individual measurement. Um, and we didn't used to report both of those numbers as individual numbers. And we just like a few months ago started doing that. So now you can see, here's my, I woke up in the middle of the night. Here's my number between then and getting out of bed. And then you have a sample two hours later. So if that CAR, if that big push of cortisol has happened while you're rolling around in bed, you can see it there. So in some of those cases, um, the, the urinary free cortisol is actually useful too, because you can, you can sort of d deduce whether the CAR happens while you're hanging around in bed, or if it actually did happen in those first two hours of being up and awake and in light and, and those sorts of things. So I, I honestly think sleep disturbance is, is tough for me in terms of if it's severe, which test is actually preferable the, um, the, the, with the CAR or with the, the urinary picture. Because with the urine picture, the one value that we get that's unique to anyone doing cortisol testing is we get a free cortisol number when you wake up. And in urine, that's a while you're sleeping cortisol, right? That's an interesting number when you start looking at cortisol and its relationship with melatonin. You know, if I've got too much cortisol while I'm sleeping, and then it's going to suppress yep. melatonin. And, yep. and, if you, if you don't do any lab analysis until you're out of bed, which is what you usually do, you just miss that whole window of time. So that is one of the advantages of our original Dutch Complete is it gives you that while you were sleeping lab value on cortisol to see. And we'll see sometimes someone who has low cortisol all day and it's going absolutely crazy while they're sleeping. What other lab test is going to give you that information, right? You, you, you have to wake up and go do lab testing. You, you have no other window into that world. And that's one of the advantages of that, that urine cortisol pattern. You guys are going to have just an ethical obligation to look at all these data over the next number of years and then publish because, you know, you're, you have the combination of CAR plus you've got the four-point urinary measurements. I mean, it's just really, really cool stuff. So while you were, while you were talking, I was just looking at shift work and cortisol yeah. awakening response and of course there's a bunch of interesting findings there and you're going to be at, you're going to be able to add to that conversation what happens with you know this you know the derangements of shift work and you've got melatonin you've right. got you know you've got melatonin you've got the four point cortisol and now you have the car you know plus you have the sex hormones and you have 8 hydroxy 2 deoxyguanosine that really great very well researched um metabolite of oxidative stress of damage to the DNA. I mean, so there's, you're going to have to get a postdoc, Mark, you know, yeah. somebody to plow through this data and, and start publishing on the conversation. Right. I'm going to hold, know, that, I'm going to hold you to it. Okay. Well, I mean, that's the whole point, right? It's like when you look at like breast cancer in the literature, right? Breast cancer has got an estrogen component, a progesterone component, an estrogen metabolite component. Melatonin's too low. That's correlated with breast cancer. Yeah. If, if cortisol is high, that's an issue. And guess what? If cortisol is high, 8-hydroxy goes up. And if melatonin is low, 8-hydroxy can go up. So there's yes. like there's all these different touch points. And that's, I think, the beauty of functional medicine is it's not this single variable, you know, mess. And that's what you're, you know, spending so much time wrestling with with all this genetic stuff is it's not about one variable. You know, it's about looking at as much of, the, of that that person's yep. collage as you can and say, how do I reduce the risk for X? Well, it's not a single thing, you know, and we want to look at as much of that as we can so that we can take the best, you know, 
course of action, not only to get people better, but to prevent, you know, some of this stuff in the first place. Yes. Yep. Indeed. Yeah, I'm with you. You have to, we really need to cast a wide net. Um, you know, on that topic, we're talking about a lot of stuff um, and a lot of markers and, and how to interpret them. And there's, you know, nuances based on clinical history, et cetera. Um, so you, so it can be challenging, especially if you're new to, um, to Dutch, but you guys have some pretty nice resources over there. I know Carrie Jones leads up your your medical team, and she's yeah. she's quite brilliant and handy, um, and accessible to clinicians. Again, also for treatment side for intervention, so not just laboratory data interpretation, um, which they can go to you on, but but to re to really think about how to address the patient in front of them. Um, I think Carrie is really quite helpful in that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I mean, for me, it feels like a little bit of a new day in lab testing in that it's not, it's not enough for a lab to give you a number and a range. Like this stuff is so, like this, there's so many inner relationships and complexities that we've taken it upon ourselves to say, look, we, we have to educate people. Um, you know, people come to us that are brilliant doctors that are educated in all this stuff, but who has time to dig through, you know, the relationship between inflammation and androgen metabolism and, you know, the, the, thyroid and cortisol clearance and all of this kind of stuff. So we spent a, a lot of our effort um, really at trying to educate the people that are using our tests so that, um, so that they're able to quickly and easily draw, you know, appropriate conclusions from the testing, both from the standpoint of evolving our reporting. You know, we have report tutorials embedded right in our reports. We have, you know, special circumstances where people have weird patterns that mean things that are kind of caveats to our testing. And so we'll put a little video link right on the front of the report that says, hey, you know what, there's, this is a weird case. You, like, you need to uh, be probably educated on this weird topic. Um, and then we spend, you know, every doctor that tests with us for their first report, Carrie, as our medical director, sends them an overview, just a doctor-to-doctor -doctor conversation to say, hey, let's work on A, what does this mean? And then B, what do we do about it? And then, you know, we've got free phone consults for all of our providers um, because it's just a necessary part of doing complex lab analysis is that you you need to dig in to how to best present it to people and then ultimately how to help them bridge those intellectual gaps um, and fill in some of the pieces of some of these concepts that are going to be new and some of the interconnectedness is not only some of the interconnectedness complex but we're still learning right and so as as that education as an industry unfolds um, I think it's really on the laboratories to start presenting that in more intuitive ways for providers so that they can use it, um, you know, efficiently in their practice. Yep, absolutely. You know, just kind of a kind of an aside, wh why not measure thyroid hormones alongside like urinary thyroid hormones or horm thyroid hormone metabolites? Right. I mean, any, I'm sure that you've looked at that and obviously yeah. it's not yeah. useful. So just comment on it. Yeah. So um, we get that question a lot. It's a good question. So, because if I can add thyroid, great. Um, you know, to be honest with you, just practically speaking, if I had thyroid, the way in which we would do it, it would increase the price. So then I'm asking myself, okay, like, is it worth it? Well, what do I get? I get T3 and T4. But there's a problem in that if I'm looking at T3 and T4 conceptually, I want to know how much T3 and how much T4 and the relationship there is interesting too, right? But there's interconversion between the two in the renal system, which is annoying because now it makes it just one kind of gamish. So I really only have like one kind of look at thyroid. And if I want to look at thyroid, like I want TSH, 
I want the antibodies. I want T3. I want T4, you know, looking at total T4, but then free T3. I mean, the, you know, and then maybe sometimes reverse T3. And where do you have to go for all that stuff? You've got to go to blood, right? So, you know, most of the people that test with us are getting blood chems, CBCs, all that stuff. Um, I would just add a thyroid panel. I mean, that's really the best way to do it. And tying that information in intellectually to what we're doing makes a lot of sense. But adding the thyroid from a urinary measurement, uh, you know, we just haven't seen the value in that because you don't get enough information. And it's not, you know, I think in urine, those values would always be like, you know, B minus C plus, like it's just not a great assessment of thyroid. And it's only a, an assessment of, you know, the urinary excretion of T3, T4, this kind of weird combination. So um, we just haven't seen enough value in it for what it would do to the price of the analysis, to be honest with you. Um, And and we'll tell people, here's your result. Now go get a blood test so you really know what's going on. And that (laughs) that just doesn't seem like, you know, it makes sense. Yeah, got it. Nope. It makes no sense. Okay, thanks. I'm sure that some people were wondering about that. Yeah, it makes no sense. It's easy to get through any standard reference lab and you know, it's always covered by insurance. So I don't, you know, right. time. So it's just, yeah, it's not a big deal. Okay. Right. So now fun. Let's talk about the future of what you guys are doing. Let's talk about some of the cool analytes you're wanting to uh, jump into. Give us yeah. The, the, yeah. Uh, the, the kind of the frontier for us is, you know, in a former life I was doing, um, and it's funny cause we have this sort of similar history um of just digging into organic acids yes um and you know my history with organic acids is i like the panel i don't love the panel because i think there are some of them to me feel like a little bit of a stretch in terms of like is there how much relevance is there to this um as far as some of the citric acid cycle intermediates and and some of the things that you know some of the markers are awesome and some of them are just kind of okay um but the bigger problem for me is that they've always been like in silos right you've got your organic acids over here and then you've got your hormones and there's no interconnectedness between the two um but there is like there are so many touch points between what's going on with your hormones and what's going on in those sorts of panels so what we've been trying to do is you know, if you do a full-blown organic acid panel, like people already do that. That's, and that's nice. And, you know, Genova does a good job and Great Plains has got their really big panel and, um, and U.S. Biotech has some, but the, uh, the, what we want to do is say, you know, is there a way, and this is what we've been working on is to keep it cost-effective, meaning leaving our pricing where it is, but to add like a, a critical central core of these that fold into what we're already doing. So for example, if I give you estrogen and estrogen pushes tryptophan, and I know you know this, but we'll just repeat it all. Um, it, you know, estrogen pushes tryptophan down the kynurenine pathway away from serotonin. If you don't have enough B6, you make xanthurinic acid. Like that's sort of a, a left-hand turn it makes if you don't have B6. And xanthurinic acid complexes with insulin and now you've got an insulin issue. Why? Because you took the estrogen and you're concurrently B6 deficient. Xanthurinic acid, then we can measure in urine as a B6 marker. And it's nice as just in isolation, a B6 marker. But if you have a patient on estrogen, like that's a very relevant finding, right? It just so happens as you know, that cortisol also pushes tryptophan down that kynurenine pathway. And again, there's this relationship between 
getting diabetes because of this whole insulin issue. Um, and then it also ties into depression. How? Because if tryptophan pushes down the kynurenine pathway, where is it not pushing down? Serotonin, right? And there's a serotonin organic acid metabolite, 5 acetic acid. Um, I mean, oddly, I was just at the, the doctor the other day and he's, you know, he, I did this weird brain map thing. I don't even know how legitimate it is yet, but he was, <laughs> you know, I, I think you have low serotonin levels based on whatever he was looking at. And I'm like, I feel fine. But I went and we had just, I had just done my own serotonin metabolite. And I was like, Oh crap, he's right. Like my, my serotonin levels are actually a little bit low because there's this metabolite. So there's this connection between estrogen and cortisol and inflammation and tryptophan heading down this other pathway and away from serotonin. And we could look at that, like we can add that to the panel. Right. And then if the patients also be six deficient, then you've got this increased risk for insulin issues um, as well as just the fact of like highlighting the fact that you have a B6 deficiency, which is not good for you. Um, and you know, there are urine markers for, I mean, everyone knows methylmalonic acid, right? Like why not have a B12 marker that's mm -hmm. going to relate to my folate status, which is going to relate to, uh, my ability to methylate what estrogens, right? So there's this interconnectedness between this core of organic acids that have been treated in isolation, I think, from the hormones. And we're trying to bring those together and say, look, like, again, let's expand the picture, put a few more pieces into the puzzle. And then when you're dealing with these complex cases of somebody who has high cortisol and happens to be depressed and um, maybe has a vitamin deficiency that's, you know, exacerbating some of these issues, uh, our likelihood of success will go up if we can do that and present it in a way that is intuitive and useful and all of that. And for me, it's just fun because it's just so interesting how um, wonderfully complex, you know, this human body is. Um, and so the more we, information we can get, the more we can piece together what the best direction is for, you know, for a particular patient. Nice, nice. And you're going to, again, have a ton of data. So, you know, you'll have unique, a, a unique perspective looking at estrogen's influence on tryptophan metabolism via the kynurenin pathway and the indolamine pathway. Right. Um, okay, so you guys are looking at, so, w well, first of all, what are these organic acids hopping on the um, Dutch panels? The, uh, and we're a little bit out of in front of this, which is just kind of my <laughs> style because like, who cares? Um, but we're not ready with that yet. Probably winter. Um, we're shooting for like first of December to be able to add your neurotransmitter metabolites, right? So a, a serotonin metabolite, a dopamine metabolite, norepinephrine, epinephrine metabolite um, to kind of round out that story. And, well, then, and you'll, you'll be looking at catechol-O-methyltransferase as well. So you'll have both. Right those which is pretty sweet okay so right. winner and for then, those and then yeah, we'll, yeah and then ahead. and then along with that is hopefully supposed to be your b6 markers anthurinate your b12 marker methyl methylmalinate and then the estrogen metabolism one of the big holes in what we do conceptually is let's say you make lots of four hydroxy estrogens okay no good yeah you don't methylate crap even worse right yep so now what is your your parachute to escape like the biggest one left is glutathione Right, so we have no marker for glutathione deficiency, and pyroglutamate, um, pyroglutamic acid, is a decent marker, as far as I understand it from looking at the literature thus far. Yeah. Um, that's your organic acid that gets elevated when you don't have enough glutathione. So then, if you have high 4-hydroxy, you're a poor methylator, like I am, because I have a COMT defect, 
and your pyroglutamine is high, like you better address that, right? Like that's going to be like triple whammy breast cancer risk. And right. so that's, um, that, so that's the last piece is that glutathione marker to add in, uh, nice. to the puzzle. So yeah, so I'm super excited about that. We've been getting, you know, some really interesting data already on those. We're in midstream on validation and then, you know, uh, then we're going to present that to people and, and try to make it as, uh, as palatable as it can be, but it's, it's going to be, a, yes, I think really powerful, you know, data and information to add to what we're already doing. I love pyroglutamate. I think it's just an underappreciated and really fairly, you know, fairly well-researched marker i mean pyro you know it, it um pyroglutamic aciduria is a phenomena i mean we see that in tylenol toxicity and a you know host of other issues and there's cool data out on it um yeah. and you have eight hydroxy two deoxyguanosine so you can see yeah, that's already there and yeah and you can kind of and you can look at that in conjunction with the pyroglutamate and and so forth right. so a lot you can connect and the, all, the other thing, Mark, that you did not mention is that you've got another um, indolamine metabolite, another serotonin pathway, not metabolite, excuse me, product. <laughs> Pop quiz. <Right>. Melatonin. You right. have melatonin, which, right. is, which is made from serotonin. So not right. only do you have 5-HIAA from the serotonin pathway, but you also have melatonin, which is really sweet. And I think that's unique to you guys. Right. I don't yeah, know. I mean, there are a couple people doing doing melatonin, and and, so, and most people have been doing it historically. I think in saliva more than anything, but but uh, not but not with five HIAA. Oh no, to combine those together is beautiful. Yeah, and yeah, um, yeah nobody's doing that. So that's right. um, that's where we want to head is um, is to yeah to fill in those pic that picture even more than what uh, what's available now. I mean, we were looking at all the analytes you met you mentioned when I was at Metametrics, but we didn't. Right we were not looking at urine melatonin and that's pretty right. sweet. So you'll right. see, you can see melatonin and serotonin insufficiency in, in, in inflammation when that kynurenin pathway is up and running. So a high xanthurinate could be associated with right, exactly. low in both of those. So a depressed insomniac and you'll start having that data pool, which is pretty, it's pretty sweet. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we're just we're just we're pretty much wrapping up here. Any anything you want to add? Oh, and you let me just confirm. You actually said the price point is not going to be increased, even though you're adding these new analytes. Did I hear you right? Um, that is the goal at this point. Yeah, I mean, our one of our main um, objectives is to make laboratory testing as cost effective as we can. And one of the things that I'm pretty good at is figuring out a way to build this mousetrap in a way um, that it's efficient. And so as we scale up and as we increase efficiencies, that's how we're investing back into um, into this whole system is to add information as we grow um, so that, yeah, so that we can add to the, the picture. And yeah, that's, that's the plan at this point is to leave the Dutch complete and the Dutch plus at their price point and to add these markers into them um, to make it, yeah, to make it even better. Well, it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, it already is a great panel, so it'll be, it'll be nice to see those new analytes and, um, you know, just have that bigger, that bigger picture. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. All right. Well, as always, Mark, it's just really fun to get to hang out with you and pick your brain. So thank you so much for joining me today on New Frontiers. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely.